Good morning. We'll revisit that scripture reading from Isaiah chapter 40 when we look at today's gospel text, which is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So we'll jump right into that text, and we'll circle back to Isaiah chapter 40 as we go. But Luke begins this portion of his narrative like this in verse 1 of Luke chapter 3. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis. I think that thing where you've only read words in your mind and haven't said them aloud, so this is feeling a little bit weird. We'll go with Trachonitis. <laughs> Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Some powerful verses. Anybody get Holy Ghost goosebumps from those pronunciations? What is Luke doing here? He's, he's setting the scene to say that this happened in a particular time. It's not just a, a once upon a time sort of thing. There are real people who are rulers over the Roman world in the first century. This is not just the stuff of myth. This is not just uh, a storybook fable, but this is real concrete events that took place in the Roman world in the first century. This is a thing that happened at a particular time. And this isn't just Luke helping us to get our bearings. I think Luke is also communicating something uh, political about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And to, to kind of emphasize this, I'm going to give the Austin translation of Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So here goes. It was now the 15th year of the reign. I'm going to have to do these names again, so bear with me. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor, but the word of God did not come to him. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, but the word of God didn't come to him either. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee, word of God didn't come to him. His brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis, word of God did not come to him. Lysanias, ruler over Abilene, him either. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests, word of God did not come to them. No, instead, at this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was in the wilderness of all places. So think about, think about it this way. If you uh, went to uh, maybe a, a movie, there was kind of a cinematic experience of this. You, you start with a shot of the halls of power. You see uh, Pontius Pilate, or the Roman emperor. You get all of these shots of uh, imperial um, largesse and uh, the attendants attending to these rulers, and you go through all of these shots, and then you end up out in the woods. <laughs> Maybe you follow a path, and uh, you see um, John popping a, a locust into his mouth. <laughs> the word of God came to John, who was in the wilderness. Do you see the scandal of this that Luke is communicating? He starts with this list of all the way down the line, all of these imperial rulers, not him, not him, not him, not them. The word of God came to John the Baptist who was in the wilderness. And John the Baptist, we might be a little nervous at this point to 
hear that God's word is coming to someone who is, um, uh, well, he's eating bugs. But let's just say it like it is. He's, he, he's um, clothed and um, maybe half clothed, looks sort of deranged, roaming around the woods, uh, this odd diet. What sort of word is he going to speak? We're maybe not prepared to hear it. But instead of just coming something up with something off the top of his head that he claims to have heard from the Lord, he quotes a previous word from the Lord that came from the prophet Isaiah. So maybe that puts our minds at ease a little bit. At least he is uh, speaking according to what has previously been spoken in scripture. And here's what he says, the scripture that we just read. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The situation into which Isaiah speaks, back in the Hebrew scriptures, has important resonances with Jesus' time. So the question that we'll ask today is, why is it that John the Baptist quotes Isaiah? What's so important about this text that he brings it back up as he prepares the way for his cousin, Jesus, who is the Messiah. What's so important about this text? Why does he quote Isaiah, and why, of all passages, does he choose this one? So I'll suggest three things. Uh, the first one is he, he chooses this passage to proclaim the deliverance is coming through Jesus in the same way that God rescued Israel from exile in Babylon. So Isaiah is writing to the Israelites who are in captivity in Babylon. And, I, and, and John the Baptist picks this up, writing also to an audience who is in some ways exiled or socially isolated or, or far from God. So Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, uses the image of the highway that the Babylonians constructed in order to parade their gods one commentator I read says it this way, the function of such a road, this highway that's being constructed in Babylon was to display the majesty of the ruler and of his gods by means of displaying his image or statue. So they would construct this highway and then they would march this statue along the highway in full view of the surrounding world. Isaiah 46, seven gives us a, a snapshot of this Babylonian procession in which a god was born around the wall of the city and then returned to his place after this parade. So verse 7 says, They, the Babylonians, carry it around on their shoulders, and when they set it down, it stays there. It can't even move. And when someone prays to it, there is no answer. It can't rescue anyone from trouble. So Isaiah, in this prophecy, is drawing upon this image in which Babylonian worshipers go to the work of building a road for a parade and then lug around their statue god and then return it to its place where it's inactive. So armed with this background, what does it mean for John, John the Baptist to pick up these words, these specific words that were originally addressed to exiles and apply them to the coming of the Messiah? Well, first of all, it's true that God's rescue of Israel from exile 
upstaged the Babylonian gods. Rather than lugging around their god down the road, they were, in a sense, being borne along. Israelites were the ones being carried, far from lugging around their statue idol. In the same way, immediately prior to when Jesus' ministry begins, there are those straining under the weight of laws that are far too heavy to bear. But John picks up Isaiah's words as if to say, you've bent under the weight of the law long enough. Now comes one whose righteousness will bear you up. Stop straining. So reading through the lens of the incarnation, we can also say that the rescued exiles are not carrying a statue, but with Jesus coming, we know now that we really are bearing an image, but in a much different way. Instead of lugging around an idol, the image we bear doesn't weigh us down. On the contrary, it marks us as rescued, as beloved. Israel's rescuer is coming, Isaiah says, not sitting idly by, just waiting to be picked up and paraded around on a highway built with human hands. No, one is coming whose righteousness will deliver you from that unbearable weight. Secondly, why does John quote Isaiah? What makes this a timely prophetic word to reuse? I think secondly, he uses it to remind his hearers of the situation from which they need to be rescued. So John is drawing on the prophetic tradition not just to tell people to get ready for the coming Messiah, but also to tell the people about their own situation. So to say it another way, John draws on, it, on Isaiah not just to tell us who is coming, the Messiah, but also to tell us to whom he is coming speaking to this situation, to tell the Israelites about themselves, to tell this first century world what they need saving from, perhaps to remind them. Isaiah is prophesying to a people who had experienced the depth of despair and social dislocation from their home as part of the Babylonian exile. Psalm 137 memorably captures this situation of the exiles to whom Isaiah writes. The psalmist says, Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on branches of poplar trees, for our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of the songs of Jerusalem. You can almost hear that mocking tone. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? So when Isaiah delivers this word originally, he says that the exile is coming to an end in a way that comforts the people. In fact, he begins chapter 40 with this word. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. So the situation to which, which John writes is not perfectly analogous. I, I don't mean to suggest that. But he does repurpose Isaiah's words. So Isaiah wrote, in a sense, to comfort the afflicted. And John is using these same prophetic words to afflict the comfortable. He's coming to those who are maybe dislocated and alienated and, and socially isolated in the same way that the, the Israelite exiles are. But unlike the Israelites of old, John the Baptist's audience maybe isn't aware of their distance from God. They've sort of lost sight of how distant they've become. 
So in uh, typical John the Baptist fire and brimstone fashion, he leaves out this comfort my people section. And he offers in, uh, instead this word. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes, who warned you to plea, flee from the coming wrath? He says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. This is maybe the important part. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. You see the contrast here. We go from comfort, comfort, to don't just say to yourselves that we're safe because we're children of Abraham. It's a marked contrast, but interesting that the same prophetic words are used in both of these utterances. So let's take maybe a moment to apply this. Why this contrast? This season of Advent that we're journeying through doesn't just tell us that Jesus is coming. It also invites us to reckon with the state of the world that Jesus is coming to, and really the state of our own hearts. In many ways, there are still these similarities. We are alienated from one another. We're, we're socially isolated from one another in remarkable ways. And one of the things that prophetic words do that I think is so powerful is they describe our own reality in a way that we maybe have failed to notice. So even though it's sort of right under our nose, we can see it, we can, we can hear it, it's so difficult oftentimes until someone comes in from the outside and tells us about our own situation, sort of re-describes our own reality. And I think that's what this prophetic word is really doing. Perhaps suffering and grief has made us forgetful of divine comfort. Or perhaps, on the other hand, material comfort has dulled our spiritual imagination or maybe blinded us to the suffering of others. Maybe you've heard this report in the last couple of weeks that came out. The Centers for Disease Control released a study um, that uh, U.S. life expectancy has gone down for the second consecutive year, which is not really what you'd expect in uh, really any country these days, but especially wealthy, prosperous nations. And in fact, the last time the U.S. life expectancy went down three years in a row was 1915 to 1918, which is, of course, World War I. So we're not just dealing with a declining life expectancy in the U.S., but really the striking thing is what they're attributing it to, which is a term that sociologists have kind of coined, which is really unfortunate. It's called uh, deaths of despair. Uh, so we're talking here about things like uh, suicide and uh, opiate addiction. Many of you have been touched by some of these things yourselves. Uh, this uh, Stephen Wolf, who's an associate professor of medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University, is a co-author of this report. He said, we are seeing an alarming increase in deaths from substance abuse and despair. Deaths of despair. He added that, and this is a quote from an article, the amount of the decrease in life expectancy is actually less alarming than the fact that addiction and a decline in the emotional well-being of Americans have been significant enough to drag down the country's average length of life. There are those, certainly, in need of comfort. And we know that's true. This social isolation is 
driving not only a, a decline in Americans' emotional well-being, but it's, uh, it's driving a lot of our political speech and, and our distance from one another. So we might jump straight to the question, what can we do about this? But I think the Advent invites us to sort of reframe that question and to ask instead, not so much what can we do, but we might say, rather as Christians, for whom are we waiting? For whom are we waiting during this season? Do we believe that one is coming not just to inhabit our mess, but to deliver us from it? He's coming not just to be beside us, to become like us, to become one of us, but to deliver us from this mess that we've created for ourselves. Do, do we really believe that? We've sort of exiled ourselves into this place characterized by a term like deaths of despair. Can he bring us out? Not so much what can we do about this, although there might be important steps that we can take, but the question we first ask as believers is for whom are we waiting? For whom are we waiting? So the third reason why I think it's fitting that John quotes Isaiah, he does so to instruct his listeners how to prepare. He does so to instruct his listeners how to prepare. So in a sense, what we're doing during this week's, these weeks leading up to Christmas is preparing the way for the coming Messiah, preparing the way for Jesus. So notice that in these prophecies, the command is to prepare the way. I like the way the New Living Translation renders it. It says, clear the road, clear the road. Then it, it switches to passive voice. So it says, valleys will be filled, mountains will be made level, curves will be straightened, rough places will be made smooth. This implies that, that we aren't the ones doing this construction work. It's being done, but we're not the ones doing it. And since our only responsibility is to clear the road, there's this massive construction project that's going on, but we're not the ones who are accomplishing it. Our only role is to prepare the way, to make way, to clear the road. We can't make the mistake that we are the ones who, by our own efforts, make possible God's entry into the world. On the contrary, it's God's entry into the world that makes possible our way out of isolation from both him and from one another. He's the one building the highway. He's the one making the mountains level and bringing up the valleys, straightening the curves. So how do we practice clearing the road? Well, John suggests repent, be baptized, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, but the crowds ask the question more directly. They say, what should we do in verse 10 of Luke chapter 3? And John replied, and this might come as a shock. To, to, he's using all of these, uh, these fiery images and, and calling people out. And then he switches to this really simple directive. He says, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. <laughs> doesn't get much more practical than that. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. What does it mean to prepare the way? What does it mean to clear the road? If you have a couple shirts, you have an extra, give one to the poor. 
If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. So as John the Baptist suggests, clearing the road can mean getting rid of clutter, even as he says in a, in a very literal sense, giving stuff away, being generous, taking stock of what's leaving no room in the inn of our hearts and ruthlessly rooting that out. And maybe not just the things that are convenient for us to get rid of. How many of you have gone through the, the closet purges? And the first things to go, of course, are the things that we no longer wear, which is not a bad practice. However, what would it mean to get rid of some of the things that, that we've really clung too dearly to? That's really part of what clearing the way might mean. I love the, the quote that, that Matt shared last week from Fleming Rutledge, so much so that I'm going to share it again here. Fleming Rutledge said, The Bible story is not a triumph of the human spirit story. It is a triumph of God's story. God is the main character. The main plot line is about God creating, God rescuing, God redeeming, God restoring, God with us. How many of you know that there's, there's rarely a straight line between the things that we do and the actual outcome? Um, <laughs> maybe we, we'd say to ourselves, um, if I could just reshape this area of my life, then things would be right. Or if I could just uh, reshape this one area of public policy, or if we, if we could just get this one person elected or, or do all of this work to, um, to change this one area of our life, then things would be better. But I, I heard somebody say earlier this week, I always try to assume that I can never guess the relationship between what I am doing and what God is doing. I always want to assume that I can never guess the relationship between what I am doing and what God is doing. So we participate... And this is maybe where the weight should land this morning. We participate in the work of God in a way that's wholly disproportionate to our contribution. We participate in the work of God in a way that's wholly disproportionate to our own contribution. So think about it. Well, this image pops into my mind. I'm teaching uh, Jack how to play catch. So parents in the room might be familiar with uh, this. I, he's facing me, and I say, okay, Jack, hold out your hands, and <laughs> I don't know why he started to do this, but he does this. <laughs> it doesn't really make much sense, but I say, no, hold out your hands in front of you, and so he does that, and I have the ball, and I say, okay, get ready to catch it, and I throw it up, and he usually doesn't catch it, but he, he is participating in that act of playing catch, but only in so far as I am able to land the ball in the basket of his hands. Does that make sense? So he's participating, but I'm the one doing all of the work, right? Parents know that's the case. And I've just realized that I've made myself God in this analogy, which is not my intention. <laughs> but we participate in the work of God in a way that's wholly disproportionate to our contribution. We participate in the work of God as a child sort of holding out his or her hands waiting for God to do all of the work. And this is really the faithful disposition. And sometimes we do 
that before we do this, right? But this is the faithful disposition. So think back to the image of the Babylonians as we prepare to close. Uh, musicians, if you want to come, Ellie. They had to build the highway and then be nearly crushed under the weight of their statue god as they carried it, only to return it to its place where it stayed inactive. We aren't the ones who did the work to build the highway. We're simply the ones whom God is ushering along on the highway. We're participating in the rescue operation, to be sure, but perhaps not in the way that we think we are. And if I could offer a sketch of our participation, how that looks, the way that we participate in the work of God is that we walk together out of exile and social isolation and into wholeness and rich life together on this highway that God has built. And this, this act of just walking on the highway built for us, being led by the one whose image we bear, is our testimony to the watching world. So the way that we live together as families, as friends, even as a community here at Solid Rock, this is our act of participation. But make no mistake, we're not the ones who built the highway, nor are we the ones who lead the way along that highway. And even in our best, most God-honoring moments together, there's still more that God is doing that we can't do anything to enhance or to prevent. God is the one acting. I hope you take comfort in that this morning. So as we pray and prepare for, uh, to receive communion, would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word of comfort. And we thank you also for your unsettling word. In whatever place we find ourselves in this Advent season of waiting, Lord, would you fix our posture in such a way that we're able to receive, to receive the work that you have already begun and that you're already doing. Even in our best moments, Lord, we can't do something to either wreck it or to make it better, but Lord, you're already at work. So whether we find ourselves in this season, which is such a, a, a crucible of emotions of, of uh, where loss is felt acutely, maybe it's a, a first Christmas season without a loved one, or um, maybe there's a, a loved one who is, is far from you, or maybe on the other hand, this is a, a season that's especially meaningful. Someone has, um, uh, we think of those in our congregation who are having a, a first Christmas with a new baby or um, those who have loved ones who have, have returned to you. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, Lord, we submit to you and we hold out our hands knowing that you're the one who does the work. We pray that you'd, be, you'd help us to be faithful in this, in this practice of clearing the way and to leave the things that we're not capable of to your capable hands, Lord Jesus. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.